I have not seen a something that is personally convincing to me that decentralization makes a good defense unless it's very extreme, like you're a, a subreddit or something like that. If you have employees and engineers and stuff like that, I don't know. There's The trouble is there's no test for this, right? It has not been sorted out in court. And I suspect we will see in the next year, this is just me speculating, we will see some small cash-strapped DAO that makes for an easy target get dragged into court to make a precedent. That's my guess. That's what I would do if I were either a claims attorney or uh, a government regulator that wanted to establish precedent and take a swipe at DAOs and like figure it out, right? They're not going to come after someone with the money to hire a bunch of lawyers. I mean, look how long the Ripple case is dragging out for the SEC. Why not find somebody that's easy to pick on, but uses the same structure? This is Opinionated, a roundtable debate that fascinates with each new thought-provoking guest, the place to convey strong ideas and at times the casual controversy. Join Features Editor Ben Schiller and reporters Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson as they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi, everyone. It's Opinionated by Coindesk. I'm Anna Baidakova, and I'm joined here by Ben Schiller. Hey there. And Danny Nelson. Hey, Danny. Hey, yeah. And today, our guest is Chris, also known on Twitter as Paper Imperium. He's a delegate of a decentralized crypto project, MakerDAO, who is probably the first and only person lobbying for DeFi regulations in the high echelons of power. Chris met a bunch of regulators and is actively expanding his connections in the big politics to turn the decentralized finance into a regulated tax-paying industry. This itself is quite a controversial concept, and we will talk about that today. But first, I think I want to ask Chris uh, to give us just a brief primer about who he is and why is he in this industry at all. Uh, Chris, you are an archaeologist by trade, right? And you are uh, consulting governmental agencies and companies of how they do not harm the cultural heritage when they build stuff, right? Yes, that's correct. So I'm, I'm used to dealing with compliance issues. <laughs> how did you first get into this crypto space and especially in DeFi? Great question. So I'm a value investor at heart and I stumbled across Maker. It had what passed for good, clear financial statements in the crypto space. It had strong cash flows, a very strong moat uh, around its business, its core business, and it has a lot of potential. And so I got invested in it and started hanging out on the forums and, as, as they say in this industry, went down the rabbit hole. So why exactly Maker? There are so many investment opportunities in crypto. Why you picked that one? Uh, it has a strong business model, right? So it depends on how far in the weeds and boring you want to get. But the, the cost of capital is quite low as opposed to another protocol that would have to source the, in this case, DAI or other stable coins in order to lend them out. So Maker, as long as it has confidence in the collateral that's accepted and in its liquidation processes, can uh, pretty much scale as rapidly as its dollar peg will allow it. Let's maybe just take a moment here and uh, remind people who 
I'm not sure if there are people in our audience who don't know what MakerDAO is, but maybe, you know, we, we all already forgot about the good maker, <laughs> the, the good old maker with all the other DeFi protocols flourishing around. So MakerDAO is issuing the algorithmic stablecoin, right? The dollar-packed algorithmic stablecoin, which is DAI, right? So if, if you can just like very briefly explain what, what Maker is and what it, what it means to be a delegate at Maker. Right. So Maker's actually fairly unique amongst stablecoin issuers. It's neither fiat redeemable like USDC or USDP, and it's not algorithmic like Frax or Fay or any of the others that, that have algorithmic components, some more algorithmic than others. Maker is purely an over-collateralized stablecoin. Uh, so people can deposit their oftentimes volatile crypto and increasingly real-world collaterals and generate uh, DAI stablecoin against their, their um, it's not really deposited you know, against their collateral because uh, they still control their collateral. It's not deposited at Maker. Maker doesn't get involved or touch it. And part of Maker's job is to ensure that DAI trades at face value on the open market. So it's, it's more akin to a loan guarantee than a loan, but a lot of times for shorthand, people will think of it as a lending protocol, even though that's not quite right. <laughs> Just in case any regulators are listening. Basically, you have some ETH, but you want some dollars. And instead of just selling your ETH, you lock it into, into the protocol and get a dollar pack stablecoin, which is DAI. That is correct. ETH is, is by far our most popular collateral. And what about being a delegate? Right. So DAOs are, it is tough to, DAOs are almost a direct democracy in many ways which means that in some regards, it's a, an exercise in low information, low engagement voting, which brings problems when you have issues that need either close attention or regular attention. A great example is just regular disbursement of payrolls or doing a deep dive into a complex financial transaction. A, a delegate maker is supposed to you know, be there to ensure that everyday housekeeping, like dispersing payrolls, doesn't get held up for weeks. And also uh, to ensure that someone's actually reading documentation, asking questions about complex transactions. It's to limit the diffusion of responsibility within the DAO. Yeah, hi. So we're doing this uh, policy week uh, here at Coindesk, and we're talking a lot about DeFi, obviously, because it's a, a coming issue. And one of the topics that keeps coming up is this question of decentralized or decentralization theater, which is basically a term that people like Gensler and others use to describe projects which claim to be decentralized, like Uniswap, for instance, but actually are less decentralized than, than they claim, and therefore open more to traditional regulation where, you know, intermediaries or centralized entities would be sort of features of enforcement or even play a role in enforcement for, for regulators. Where do you stand on that sort of question? I mean, do you think MakerDAO, uh, for instance, is, is fully decentralized and therefore outside of this sort of centralized system of regulation and control, or, or, or do you think that that's really a misnomer? So my thoughts are still evolving on this. I do wonder, I've not been able to find a good answer where this decentralization as defense originated from, because the trouble is, even if decentralization is uh, a way to avoid financial regulation, I would really stress in particular to DeFi, uh, to DAOs in particular, that uh, financial regulations are generally not going to be an existential crisis. Perhaps for some protocols, they will be, depending on what business lines you engage in. But that's not what keeps me up at night. 
to be quite honest. Two reasons. One is enforcement actions, they're not pleasant, but it should give you some idea of what you need to remedy. And then you can get your brightest minds to begin working on it and try to do the gymnastics to maintain your your business model and meet compliance standards. Also, generally, they don't send people to jail or, you know, just absolutely ruin lives. I am more concerned with other forms of legal liability. Um, And I really, really uh, hope that anybody interacting with a DAO is doing so inside a limited liability vehicle of some kind. Whenever I talk to, say, undergraduates or somebody like that 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 asks me to, to chime in, that's like my biggest PSA is whatever you do, if you're doing anything, even if you're, and perhaps I'm paranoid, but I feel like this is a, in crypto, you, you can be forgiven for being paranoid, right? That's why we're all here. If you're doing anything more than just literally just holding Bitcoin and ETH, not legal advice, but I, I don't see the downside other than a few hundred dollars and a, a paperwork headache to be inside some kind of limited liability vehicle. But when you go to Congress, you're going as yourself. You're not going as the LLC. Uh, no, I make sure that I'm going as as the corporation I'm wrapped in. I, oh. I do not interact in any way with anything in crypto except inside my corporation. Oh, interesting. Yes. But the making sure that the regulatory structure that uh, the entity in the entity is wrapped in is important. But I mean, going back to the idea of decentralization theater, what's the point of having these structures of doing business at all if we're not thinking about that kind of thing. Like, I, I mean, I'm not to name names for a project here, but I recently received an embargo on a project that was uh, having a vote and the vote hadn't happened yet, but they were out here giving me the, the results of the vote so that we would be ready to write an article as soon as the vote concluded, because they were so sure about you know how the, the deck was stacked that it really didn't matter that the proposal was going to vote. They had it ready to go. So it, that is a perfect, I mean, I'm not going to name the project, but it's a perfect example, I think, of the imperfect way that uh, some DAOs and some of these structures are heading where they're, they're claiming decentralization, they're claiming having democratic processes, they're claiming you know, giving control to their users, to the holders. And even so, they're also out there not actually really following through on the ethos. So wh- what do you think of that? Well, you'll not find me defending it as a structure. I think DAOs are lousy structures. Could, well, you, uh, ex- could you go on, on on that point? Yeah. So there's, for one thing, I it's untested, this decentralization defense. So I have not seen a something that is personally convincing to me that decentralization makes a good defense unless it's very extreme, like you're a, a, a subreddit or something like that. You know, if you have employees and then engineers and stuff like that, I don't know. There's, the trouble is there's no test for this, right? It has not been sorted out in court. And I suspect we will see in the next year, this is just me speculating, we will see some small cash-strapped DAO that makes for an easy target get dragged into court to make a precedent. That's my guess. That's what I would do if I were either a claims attorney or uh, a government regulator that wanted to establish precedent and take a swipe at DAOs and like figure it out right? They're not going to come after someone with the money to hire a bunch of lawyers. I mean, look how long the Ripple case is dragging out for the SEC. Why not find somebody that's easy to pick on, but uses the same structure? So do you understand it correctly that you would prefer Maker to be an actual entity with the commercial 
goes, you know, with the commercial targets, with a legal structure, with all the bells and whistles of a traditional corporation? Uh, not necessarily a corporation, but some form of entity that is domiciled somewhere. I feel like people confuse the, there's both the, the type of entity and there's the domicile. All these DAOs that play at being stateless things, that's great until you get dogpiled all at once, right? Because right now you can shop for a favorable jurisdiction, be that the Caymans or the Bahamas or the K or the EU or the US or you know, wherever. You know, there's arguments for lots of different uh, jurisdictions, right? Some more compelling than others. But this is a chance to figure out where you want to live, and that will give you clarity on your tax regime and your legal compliance obligations. If you're nowhere, that means there's also not some system of tax treaties or international trade treaties that will then protect your rights you know, going forward, if multiple parties say, oh, you violated some regulation. All right, I I'm going to go full cypherpunk here. But what if we go to that old statement that code is law and the decentralized entity and, you know, the whole notion of blockchain and decentralized system rely on the philosophy that you can solve things in a decentralized way and doing it, you don't actually need any outside interference. You don't need any regulator because you have a community of full-fledged members who understand their risks, who are willing to participate, and who are willing to solve all the issues among themselves uh, as Maker is trying to do when they have problems. So how about this concept? Why just not roll with it and see what happens instead of trying to turn this proverbial virtual cypherpunk fortress into just another, um, I don't know, like firm corporation, LLC, what have you. So that's a, that's a great question because I get pushed back on that a lot. Part of it's just going to be philosophical. If you want to live off in a dark corner, living in the back alleys, you know, rummaging for scraps, go for it. But the illicit market is going to be much, much smaller than the business opportunities in the illicit market. And also, quite frankly, a lot of people are going to get wrecked if in one way or another. If and they are. Saying, yeah, and yeah. they are getting right, wrecked we, regularly. Right. This happens all the time. I and mean, that's how wrecked news exists is these salacious stories just keep coming. Now, imagine if we at some point start piling legal uh, wrecking on top of this, right? Not just rug pulling through smart contracts. Let me put it this way. How is someone going to have uh, exposure in their retirement fund or their kid's college fund to crypto, which is a fantastic asset class with lots of innovation going on? You know, so what, you're only going to let the uh, testosterone-filled 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds participate in this market? Excuse That's me. stupid. <laughs> What, what if it's not just uh, to testosterone field 20 years old? What if there are also people like you who have a different perspective and who can, you know, like impact the outcome? Mm. So, <laughs> I mean, let, let's be honest. Most people voting in DAOs are extremely disengaged and have very little understanding of what's going on. And the more complex the DAO, the more important that becomes. DAOs may be a great structure for 
uh, kind of social project or, you know, art or uh, a limited one-off project, but operating a going concern, uh, these things tend to become more and more complex over time. DAOs is an economic engine as well. You take a company or a centralized organization and you, you smash it into pieces. Each of those pieces is its own company. They're not all DAOs. And you know what each one is? They're a tiny monopolist with firm-specific information that is hard to replace. So you've taken a, a company that internalizes a lot of inefficiencies and has lots of things wrong with it. I mean, we can sit here all day and talk about how all the ills with corporations and centralized entities. But just because you get rid of that set of problems doesn't mean you don't get a whole new set. And it's a set that nobody has had time to figure out solutions for, right? So how do I keep just every little person from setting up their own personal toll booth inside a DAO when it comes to compensation? That's a great example. That raises an interesting question about uh, lobbying in general, because I mean, if you're Google and you're getting together with Amazon and all the other big tech companies and you're going to Washington, presumably you've had a sort of grand meeting and you've discussed a strategy and there's going to be a unified voice coming out of the industry and, and those companies and, and those kind of hierarchies. But in this case, if you're a delegate, you're one delegate amongst many on, on this platform. How do the regulators and the politicians know that you're really speaking for Maker? Because it sounds like from what you're saying, you have quite a different philosophy to many of your other delegates on there. So what right do you really have to lobby Congress when uh, that might not be the party line or it might be a very sort of different point of view from your colleagues or from your uh, co-conspirators? The short answer is no one can speak for a DAO. In my particular case, I am currently, it could change by the time I get off of this podcast, but I'm currently the largest delegate. So that offers oh, are, some, yeah, some backup. <laughs> can you give us some indication of how you become a, the largest delegate? I mean, that must be quite, a, quite an outlay. I'm what passes for a, a suit and an economist at, at Maker. So wow. you know, a third rate economist and monetary theorist is enough to get you there. <laughs> what is what you're trying to achieve? What's the end game here? I spend a lot of my time talking about two things. One is DAOs, which is the most important issue before DeFi. This whole financial regulation stuff is a red herring. It has nothing to do with crypto. It's the DAO structure. We need legal clarity. We need liability protections, if nothing else. But moving on to Maker specifically, uh, stable coins, right? We're the only large stable coin that's not fiat redeemable. It's very clear when I talk to regulators and if you read the literature that when they talk about stable coins, they are thinking about Tether, USDC, and the like, where you can trade in a token and get a dollar show up in your bank account, presumably. And so they are rightfully worried about bank runs and because the, and they say these things are shadow banks and look like shadow banks because, well, let's be honest, they are shadow banks. That doesn't mean they're evil. That doesn't mean they're wrong. That doesn't mean they're impossible to operate safely. But these people, these regulators and lawmakers would not be doing their job if they were not asking questions and just shrug their shoulders and said, hey, man, do what you want to do. All right. So that's the adult position. But then that leaves maker, right? We are not redeemable for fiat. We operate very differently, just like a, a credit union and a bank look very similar from the parking lot or uh, when you're getting a loan, but operate very differently on the inside. Maker also arrives at its stablecoin very differently than someone ponies up a dollar in a bank account somewhere. So that means that we deserve a different regulatory touch. Will that be lighter? I hope so. Should it be different? Absolutely. 
and trying to make sure that we don't get regulations applied to us that are literally not designed for us is part of why I'm out there. The details always matter with these things and someone who is well-organized and well-informed will outclass a whole army of lawyers and lobbyists and regulators that are only lightly engaged with the specifics. So this provides dangers as well as opportunities. So let's take a couple examples. So Representative McHenry from my home state, uh, the ranking member on the House Financial Services Committee, recently introduced legislation that is uh, basically a copy paste of Hester Pierce's safe harbor, right? So good, right? Well, the trouble is if you're an existing project, the rules are written such that you're really in trouble because it all hinges on disclosures by the initial development team. I can't find the initial development team for Maker necessarily, much less compel them to make disclosures they may or may not want to. So that's great for new things going forward. But these details, these are the headwinds or tailwinds of you know, the next five years. Another example, right? So Senator Loomis, huge pro-crypto advocate, again, uh, has been talking and making noise lately about how stablecoins should be backed by cash, right? Again, we don't operate the same way as these other stable coins. Also notably, you know, remember that she represents Wyoming, which does have a bank that is about to launch its own stable coin backed by cash. So it's easy to see how the home constituent would have an advantage under that legislation. And then on the other side, you can speculate that some regulators are more knowledgeable than others. Take the most recent uh, recommendation or noise making out of the FDIC to offer deposit insurance to stable coins. This sounds great, right? Well, the FDIC is one of the seven federal regulators that triggered the Bank Secrecy Act for those that they regulate, which means any stable coin that had this deposit insurance would have to perform KYC and, and other anti-money laundering measures on, on their, their counterparties. So that's a, a nice carrot instead of a stick. It's nice to see that but I've not seen anyone else pick up on that. This is the chess game that's being played out there. It's the details. Since you've been in DC and, and you've been lobbying people, I mean, have you seen the picture of lobbying? I, mean, I, I know you said you're not a lobbyist, but you're, you're an advocate. You're someone who's educating uh, lawmakers. H have you seen a picture, uh, a change in DC? Because it's our understanding, and we're doing some reporting on this, that there have been a lot of uh, new lobbyists who've set up in DC recently, particularly since the infrastructure bill this summer which included that crypto tax provision that was very controversial and was widely seen as a wake-up call to the industry that it really needed to get serious in, in DC and start talking to these lawmakers. Have you seen a picture change there in, in the last few months while you've been uh, walking around? So I would say the, the big takeaway from the big infrastructure bill dust up was basically that everyone stopped talking to me for about 30 days <laughs> until, <laughs> until it all blew over <laughs> and did not dominate headlines. They were preoccupied with, with that bill rather than DeFi, you mean, or? I think people wanted to keep their heads down. I mean, these, understandably, these folks, they don't know how useful what we do is, or are we a bunch of, you know, degenerates, or are we actually doing things like lending uh, money to build solar farms, right? They're both true, but, you know, they, you cannot blame them for wanting to see which way the political winds blow before they stick their head up. And so do you think they know which way the wind's blowing now? Or, I mean, has this led to some clarity in their thinking? So I think Republicans are 
generally lukewarm to to supportive. Not all of them, not universally, but Republicans, even when they don't want to talk to me, they will oftentimes make their staff available. Democrats, they seem to be trying to figure out if they want to make it a party thing or if it's going to be person by person. It's been interesting, though, because there have been several people who are Democratic challengers, either in Republican held seats that are, have recently been redistricted or to anti-crypto sitting Democrats who may or may not be vulnerable. So I think after the primary season, we'll have more clarity on that side. Uh, this is making me think about how this is dividing between parties or beginning to divide. I'm thinking now of Andrew Yang, a, a candidate who's got a party that I don't think we should take too seriously, but we should also keep an eye on because he does have people who follow his, his cause. And he's also making a fuss about cryptocurrency. I don't exactly know what he believes. He's pro-crypto, which is kind of vapid. He um, believes in math, I think. He believes in math and also crypto, which is good because crypto is backed, I'm told, by math. Do you think that we're going to get to a point where crypto becomes a partisan issue, which I, I think we all can agree would be detrimental if crypto's fate is ultimately put up to party lines? And how could we get ahead of that trend if we're going that way? So... I think it depends. So you have to remember that the government, including Congress, is just a bunch of people. It's not this thing. And each person has their own wants and desires and fears and incentives. And, and constituents. And constituents. And of course, the government is itself notably ungoverned, as, as I have been told in the past. But I think it depends. So if you are dealing with, say, a representative who wants to be assured that federal reserve policy can still transmit into dollar peg stable coins, that's a concern that can be answered, right? Because it's based on, to some extent, facts and models, but you know, it's a question of design and it's an answerable question. If you have someone that their main concern is about inequality or something, you know, that crypto could go in either direction right? So it's hard to address their concerns, especially in a way that's going to be convincing to them. If you are dealing with someone that's concerned with consumer protections, then if you can nail them down on specifics, then again, you have an answerable question. So it depends on if people have answerable concerns or if they just have fears. Just switching gears here a little bit. It's interesting that while you are you know, probably one of the very few crypto advocates out there in DC, especially, you know, a kind of a lone wolf advocate, uh, not an entity, not an association, but just one man army. The lawmakers who have no idea about uh, crypto or have, have a very slight idea, but the community you are representing might have a very different perspective on the stuff. Uh, on, on a lot of things we mentioned today, one recent event uh, indicated that difference, I, I think, quite clearly when uh, recently the MakerDAO community voted down the proposal to actually pay you for, for the work you're doing uh, to grant you $50,000 worth of DAI. And a couple of days later, you tweeted, I'm currently up for hire, including all my non-transferable personal contracts. So... Are you a bit disappointed in the MakerDAO community at this point and looking for a staff job at some other project? So with regards to the compensation poll, 
I mean, look, these things are nobody's fault. I'm not aware of any campaign to deny me pay. It was more a function of I, of course, was abstaining from uh, my own compensation because that's financial oversight is what brought me to prominence originally at, Ma- at MakerDAO. And so I want to adhere to best practices, which also means a lot of Maker that supports me the most was sidelined from the vote. It was also some un- unfortunate timing of uh, another delegate that was supporting me decided to realize some gains at an unfortunate time for me. Anyways, but yes, I have been very pleasantly surprised at how much outside uh, organizations have valued my work and I'm currently weighing my options, some of which would, would keep me at Maker and some of which would not. I think Maker is a wonderful organization and can, I think, if Maker navigates the next 12 to 18 months well, I think it will be a trillion dollar market cap someday. This sounds like a nice point to wrap up, I guess. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. Uh, It's been a great conversation. And I think that DeFi regulation will be an ongoing topic in the months to come. Well, I thought it was really interesting how everyone's beginning to have a substantial discussion about the future of this industry. I mean, it seems like for years and years, we've been kind of circling the wagons around a lot of these questions. And it's all now coming to a head in DC and in other sort of power centers of the world that politicians on the one hand know they need to take this seriously. Regulators are are gearing up, having largely kind of ignored this stuff. And the industry, um, whether it's the large kind of lobbying shops or the associations or the the one-man bands that we saw today with with Chris, are are really going down there and really having this discussion. And this feels like, dare I say it, sort of democracy in action. And it might be kind of messy and kind of um, complicated, but, you know, it does seem like we're making headway and it will lead to some kind of definition and some clarity in this industry, which has badly lacked uh, definition and clarity for for at least three or four years. So um, I I feel positive about this. I'm still wondering, I mean, I'm trying to understand how to square a lot of competing desires here. Like on one hand, the, the position that he's taking is inherently, you know, DeFi is worth keeping around, right? I think that at the base level, that's that's a, a fair statement to make. He also says, you know, DAOs are trash, which I would I would tend to agree that well, he I've didn't seen... say exactly. I know. Well, that. he didn't say I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, he said that DAOs are, are a really uh, uh, not so great model of getting things done. So, you know, if, if, if those two things are true, DeFi is generally worth keeping around and DAOs are generally not a good way. And DAOs are generally not a good way of doing business. Then I'm left wondering, all right, well, if DeFi is good and it's decentralized finance, well, the difference that makes it decentralized is, in large part, the governance. It, how do you have a system that uh, supports DeFi if the prevailing system is so flawed? Uh, and I, it's an unanswered question, but I feel like it's an important one. It's like, I don't know how you can get to the DeFi good position before fixing the how do decentralized. That was striking to me as well that, you know, although he's a prominent member of this DAO, and uh, I would say MakerDAO is one of the oldest ones, you know, they went through good and bad, but he doesn't think that the whole thing, like he's not sure if the whole thing he's participating in (laughs) is worth it. Talking about pessimism and optimism, Ben, 
when Chris said that the bad news are that some of the legislators are not just paying attention to crypto, I was thinking like, why is it a bad news? Like maybe it's a good news. Maybe we don't need their attention. But then again, this would be just, just a very different uh, way of thinking about that. But I think just for a long time, everybody thought like DeFi is the place where they will not come, you know, where we're safe from all these regulators trying to impose like, you know, KYC and stuff. The deeper we are into all these policy discussions uh, about crypto, the more obvious it becomes that DeFi is not safe from, from regulation and, and the regulator will totally. come after it. Totally. I mean, it reminds me of that old, uh, you know, Oscar Wilde quote, which says something about, uh, you know, there's only one thing worse than uh, people criticizing you and that's people ignoring you. Pretty similar with DeFi is like, you know, that you might think that it's good that regulators want nothing to do with you and you can exist in this kind of world of fantasy and, and, and your own sort of making. But uh, if you really want to build a business, if you really want to build revenue for the long term, then you have to play the game. And I think that's what's happening in DC now that they're playing the game and we'll, we'll see where, where the game ends up. But is building a business a goal here? Building money and building livelihoods. And this guy is clearly making a buck out of it, whether you call it a business or not. It's, it's a collective enterprise to generate value. That sounds like a business to me. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the different structures and it might be legally sort of different, but a collective enterprise where you share the profits sound like, sounds like Coindesk, you know. Yeah, and if you have and if you have an asset that represents uh, that collective enterprise, it gives you um, some sort of stake in that. That kind of is like a security. That's a different right. conversation, though. Well, similar, comes, similar. Yeah, everything the is the uh, everything is theater. Nothing is real. Crypto's a scam. When you see the price of Bitcoin going to new highs like this, you know the big holders are cashing out because yeah. they know the drop is coming. Just, Here just comes the guy who spends too much time reading the SEC filings. I mean, I do think, uh, sorry, sorry, I want to say, uh, we published an op-ed, Preston Byrne, who's a very clued in uh, Washington lawyer. He was making the point about decentralization theater that people like Gensler have said, oh, these protocols are not really decentralized. Therefore, you know, we can, we can regulate them as if they were centralized entities or they have aspects that are centralized. And he was saying that that might be true at the moment, but the next generation of DeFi, the next generation of social media on peer-to-peer -peer networks will really be decentralized. They really will have no uh, actors that regulators and legislators can go after. And regulators haven't quite got their head around that yet. You're still having Gensler saying, oh, you know, we can still use the same old system. Well, I don't think we can. And we haven't quite got to the point of really accepting what's, what's going on here, which is uh, a whole new way of orchestrating uh, people and, uh, and value creation. Yeah, but I mean, like the next generation of Ethereum will have low fees and high throughput. That's not happening quite yet. So, and also just uh, on a note on Preston, another thing he tweeted out was that phony baloney Russian press release. Uh, he was circulating fake news that the, that the Russian treasury, Anna, please speak to this, was investing a bunch of rubles in a Bitcoin. And I think Anna can say that uh, Anna, who I believe, Anna, you speak Russian, right? Yeah, right? I th I'm I think not sure. Vitakova? Yeah, I yeah. think I think she does. Anyway, I'm pretty sure she knows that it's a BS press release. Yeah, I was like, I was like outraged when I saw that. And there were so many retweets. There were so many quotes, like, because they said that basically, you know, that the, the Russian treasury is putting like $1 billion or something into Bitcoin, which like, if you heard anything about Russia regulating crypto, 
would absolutely strike you as nonsense. Maybe um, they partnered with Litecoin. Maybe Russia partnered with Litecoin. So some XRP in there. But anyway, that's not happening, guys. That's, that's fake news. I think that to understand DeFi going to be quite a task for regulators and lawmakers. And it will be interesting to watch them, you know, going through that uh, Crypto 101, then DeFi 101 course, and what comes out of that. You know, maybe it's a good thing that there are people like Chris around to educate them on this. So let's see what happens. Yeah, I thought he was a great interview, a great guy, and he's a real sort of iconoclast, uh, someone who's really going out on his own and doing his own individualistic thing, which is uh, very American and very um, to be applauded, I think. Totally, totally. And that's a good point to wrap up, probably. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please follow us uh, on Twitter and on whatever podcast app you're using. Please rate us and let us know what you think about Opinionated. It's been me, Anna Baidakova. It's been me, Ben Schiller. And it's also been that guy, Danny Nelson. Who spends too much time in the SEC filings. Exactly. And we all see you next week. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Badakova, Danny Nelson, and guest paper Imperium. Today's show is produced, announced, and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our theme music is by Ellison. Have any questions or comments? Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening.